Um, thank you for coming to this session and um, coming to learn about the pain and opioid crisis in this country and how we can leverage platforms and pain psychology to address both. Um, my name is Dr. Beth Darnell. I am a clinical psychologist. I'm a pain specialist at Stanford University, and I have been treating patients with chronic pain exclusively for about 15 years now. Um, I, my background, I'm briefly going to tell you, I completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins University. I was faculty at Oregon Health and Science University for about six years before coming to Stanford University, where I've been faculty for four years. Um, my NIH research focuses on pain psychology and how to uh, best characterize pain, catastrophizing, and best treat it in people who have chronic pain. Um, I am the co-chair of the Pain Psychology Task Force at the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Um, I do a lot of academic writings. I also have blogs at Psychology Today and the, the Huffington Post. So if you're interested in learning more, you can visit uh, my website. Um, here are my, oops, sorry, let me get the clicker. Here are my uh, disclosures with um, the NIH. I already mentioned the uh, pain psychology research. Um, I'd also like to disclose that I'm the author of these two books. And a lot of people mistakenly think that I am anti-opioid because of the books that I write. And I want, in full disclosure, to get my position on opioids, which is um, I am not anti-opioid. However, I am very much in favor of minimizing risks, um, giving people access to alternatives giving them access to information so that they're making informed choices. And I firmly believe that whether or not people take opioids, it's in their best interest to learn everything they can to minimize their need and use of opioids. I'm also a scientific advisor for uh, Axial Healthcare, which is a company that's focusing on providing patient education around opioid risks. Um, so I'd also like to um, introduce Dr. Sean Mackey now. He is the... Um, Chief of the Division of Pain Medicine at Stanford University. He is the past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. He chaired the, co-chaired the Oversight Committee for the National Pain Strategy, and he was uh, integrally involved in the development of the 2011 IOM report on pain in the United States. Um, in 2016, this year, he received the Wilbur Fordyce Award from the American Pain Society. The accolades are too numerous to list, so I will end there and, and allow him to go forward with his disclosures. Thank you, Dr. Darnell. All right, it is, uh, it's always exciting to be here. This is, uh, I, I lost count on how many times I've been to Pain Week and always enjoy coming here because of the varied uh, audience we get, the different uh, opinions, the different views. I want to thank the organizing committee for selecting Dr. Darnell's proposal. She's the one who wrote this all up. And we're uh, going to be tag-teaming this and doing things a little bit different than most sessions, and we're going to see how well we pull it off. We, uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we chose a controversial subject, this issue of opioids, of uh, pain, and we're going to try to prevent you, present you some uh, different views. Prevention is going to be a key theme here. By way of background, again, I'm, uh, I am a clinician. I take care of patients at Stanford. I'm also a researcher. I also spend far too much time shuffling papers as an administrator. I spend a lot of time at national policy. All of my funding is from either the NIH or from grateful patients. I don't accept any industry support. 
And uh, people always, much like with Dr. Darnell, try to put us into a, a box and figure out, well, is, is he pro-opioid, is he anti-opioid? It's very simple. I'm not pro-opioid, I'm not anti-opioid, I'm pro-patient. It's as simple as that. I have seen uh, these medications uh, destroy people's lives. I've seen these medications save people's lives. And there's no simple answer here. It's a complex uh, answer to a complex problem. Let's dive on in to the learning objectives. There's a lot of language here. Let's not read this. Let me just quickly summarize. You can download, by the way, a PDF of these slides off of the website. It's an updated version. If you downloaded it anything more than, say, 24 hours ago, you've got an old set, download the current one. We're going to put forward this concept of pain and the prescription opioid epidemic as public health problems. And we're going to define what a public health problem is. We're going to define how you approach public health issues in this country and globally. We are then going to be diving into the CDC and the National Pain Strategy, giving you a brief summary of them, and describing things in the context of public health problems and solutions. And then we're going to be talking and focusing, we're going to be focusing a lot about Stanford. This is going to be a Stanford-centric talk insofar as what are we trying to do within our group to help advance these missions uh, these public health missions and how are we approaching it and what have we have achieved and how we're looking forward to working with lots of collaborators. And then we're going to be then turning things also back to Dr. Darnell, who's going to be talking about tools to use for pain psychology. And I'll also be talking about leveraging an open source and free learning healthcare system to get better data. Let's dive on in here. Next two slides only need the briefest introduction. You can't open up a newspaper, read a magazine without recognizing that we have a public health crisis around the issue of pain. Similarly, we're also uh, bombarded daily with this issue of a prescription opioid epidemic, uh, most uh, recently even taken on by President Obama in this interview. It's important to recognize that today we are seeing more people killed because of opioid overdose than traffic accidents. I'm hoping I can find a clip with him in the future talking about pain. I'm working, we're working on it. Defining things as a public health problem. Let's just do a little bit of taxonomy. Almost 100 years ago, Winslow defined public health as the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, promoting health through organized efforts and informed choices of society, organizations, public and private, uh, communities and individuals. I think one of the key messages here is informed, informed choices. These choices that we're going to be making are not easy. They're not even simple. They're going to require complex choices to complex problems. And I want to introduce this concept within public health of focusing on primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention aspects. And this is a model that I'm putting forward as a way of looking at both pain as well as opioids within this country. And it's across the spectrum of primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. So let's look at all of them. Primary prevention is preventing the incident from happening in the first place. That means preventing pain before an injury ever occurs. That's usually dealing with things in the workplace uh, so we can prevent injury. And similarly, you know, avoiding, if you will, the exposure to opioids. Secondary prevention is after the injury has already occurred or after a surgery has occurred or a trauma has occurred or, in the case of opioids, after there's already exposure to the opioids and then preventing the chronification of pain or preventing, if you will, the transition into somebody misusing or abusing opioids. Tertiary prevention, at the end, is after this person already has chronic pain. How can we prevent them from going on to have catastrophic high-impact pain 
or somebody is misusing or abusing opiates from going on to frank disease of addiction. We're going to be focusing today predominantly around the secondary prevention angle, dipping our toe into some of the tertiary prevention. We're not going to be getting into primary prevention because uh, it's not a primary focus here of this uh, particular topic. Now, how do we go about approaching things from a public health standpoint? Well, the models here are also fairly clear. You want to first define the magnitude and the scope of the problem. How big of an issue is it? What is the issue made up of? You then want to identify risk and preventative measures to then develop and test preventative strategies. You want to, within that context, figure out what works for whom and why. Once you've got that nailed down, you then want to release that into the wild and ensure widespread adoption of these approaches. This model has been used with a multitude of public health problems throughout history and used successfully. We're going to start now with defining the problem. And so the problem is well known to this audience, the problem of pain and the problem of prescription opioid uh, overdose deaths. And I'm going to start with opioids just because the story unfolds a little bit easier as I'm going to tell it. And we know that opioid prescribing has increased dramatically since the 90s. And that for a period of time, the combination of hydrocodone and acetaminophen, Vicodin, was the number one prescribed agent in this country. It's only been in the last year that it dipped down to number three, probably due to the rescheduling of Vicodin as a Schedule II agent. And we also know that there is an association between the sales of opioids and opioid-related overdose deaths, which shouldn't be a surprise because if we assume the same background prevalence of vulnerability to uh, misuse, abuse, and addiction, the more people are exposed, the more likely, uh, the more numbers of people who are going to have overdoses. The CDC put out several years ago the fact that the U.S. is in the midst of an opioid overdose epidemic. They noted more recently that there have been a number of state guidelines that have come out, but these state guidelines all kind of take on these issues in slightly different ways. There's different languaging, there's different uh, guideline recommendations, different thresholds. They elected to come out with a separate set of guidelines, uh, and these were released in March of 2016. Those were released to great uh, press and uh, with some degree of controversy I'll share with you. I'm not going to go through all of the details of this particular slide, which lists the 12 major points of the CDC opioid guidelines. The, thing, the key thing to note is that they were bundled into three separate buckets, if you will, this determining when to initiate or continue opioids for chronic pain, opioid selection, dosage, and duration, and follow-up, and then assessing risk and addressing the harms of opioid use. You can download this, uh, this in a larger format from the CDC website, and also it will be in your slides. I will also share with you that the recommendations from the CDC, the vast majority of them are motherhood and apple pie. They were present in many of the state guidelines that uh, have been put out within the Canadian guidelines, within many of the workers' comp guidelines. I co-chaired in California the opioid guideline development, and we included, I think every, we included every single one of these points in ours as well. So there wasn't in that aspect a lot of controversy. There was controversy in some of the statements that were put out, particularly around the issue of that there's no evidence for uh, uh, benefit from opioids. And I think what was controversial about this is put uh, forward is they chose not to look at any data uh, that was less than one year of duration. And so they kept a fairly high bar. You have to applaud the CDC, though, for the effort to protect the health of our citizens in this country. And we can all appreciate that. The final impact of this guideline, though, is going to wait the testament of time and the data as it comes out. I will share with you anecdotally, anecdotally, as a clinician, 
working at Stanford and Tertiary Referral Center, I am seeing, and I think Dr. Darnell and other physicians there are seeing, and you may be seeing, an increased number of patients that are getting dumped by physicians who no longer want to prescribe them opioids and are appealing to this position of higher authority, the CDC guidelines, as a way of doing it. And we're seeing a number uh, of increasing patients who are feeling stigmatized because they're not able to get their opioids uh, refilled. We're now going to shift gears, and we're going to move into the Institute of Medicine report on pain that was uh, put forward by 19 uh, authors and co-chaired by our former dean, Phil Pizzo. We, in this report, put forward 100 million Americans suffering from pain. That number is highly controversial, and if people in the Q&A session want to talk about where that number came from, uh, I'm delighted to discuss it and defend it. It's a real number, and it is accurate. We spend over half a trillion dollars a year in pain, which is more than diabetes, heart disease, and cancer combined. While pain can be a symptom of another condition, it can develop into a disease in and of its own right that reduces quality of life. We also know that there's huge disparities in the treatment and assessment of pain, that it, overall pain is undertreated, and we put forward a major message that we need better data. Some of the other underlying principles of the IOM that form the basis for the next part of this talk is that the treatment of pain is a moral imperative in our society. I've already talked about the disease aspect. We also put forward that pain is a team sport. We need to treat it using multiple disciplines, multiple perspectives, and we called on prevention as a major angle, as a, as a big part of the IOM. There's a lot of existing knowledge out there that we don't put to good use. The people here at Painwork are doing a great job in disseminating that knowledge. We need to do this better nationally. We did recognize the conundrum of opioids, but we took a very balanced approach in how we addressed it. And then we spoke very clearly about the role of primary care and the need to collaborate with primary care physicians and then also patients and the value of treating this as a public health issue. And you're going to hear me say public health over and over again. About a year went by, and then then a secretary, uh, Assistant Secretary of Health Howard Coe came to the Inter, uh, Interagency Pain Research Coordinating Committee at the NIH, and he asked us to take on this national pain strategy. And uh, I was uh, honored to uh, end up co-chairing that effort with Linda Porter from the NIH. We put together six working groups that covered thematically the areas within the Institute of Medicine report on pain, and those six working groups and their report is available freely to download from the NIH website. I encourage you to do it. For the purposes of the discussion today, I'm going to focus on just two of the working groups, and we're going to build on that as this story unfolds. One was in population research, and the underlying theme here in the population research working group that was co-chaired by Ann Scherer and Michael Von Korp is that the quality of the data that we currently have about pain, its prevalence, its incidence, uh, the effectiveness of different treatments is terrible. We don't, I can't even answer a question. We can't answer the question, does a tricyclic work better than an SNRI? Does that work better than CBT? Does that work better than a spinal cord stimulator or acupuncture? Nobody on this, for low back pain, for instance, nobody on this planet can answer that very simple question in real-world patients. We're also going to be building on the care and prevention working group that Dr. Dan Carr, who's the current president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, and I co-chaired as well. And here we put forward this idea of pain as a biopsychosocial disease needs to be treated in a team-based approach, that we need to better leverage self-management programs, and we more, need more consistent data, more consistent assessment approaches, and treatment approaches. 
Back to Dr. Darnell. Thank you. So both the CDC and the National Pain Strategy have emphasized the need to integrate evidence-based treatments into pain care in the United States. And this includes cognitive behavioral therapy. This includes self-management programs. And really the basis for this, I, I know that this is a review for virtually everyone in the audience, but it bears repeating that in this country there's typically um, an emphasis on the biomedical approach. And this is true not just with clinicians, but there's a biomedical approach with patients. And so there's a focus on the location of where the pain is felt. And there's very much a focus on needing to target our treatments locally. But what we know is that Pain is a brain-based phenomenon. It's actually in the nervous system. All pain is processed in the nervous system. And so anything that's gonna affect a person's nervous system is likely going to have an impact on how they experience pain, how much they suffer from pain, and also their pain treatment needs. And so this is really the role of pain psychology where we come in is that you know, a lot of the areas of the brain that are associated with processing of emotions, for instance, also share overlap with the areas of the brain associated with the processing of pain. And so there's a bi-directional relationship between these psychological factors, our emotions and also our thoughts, whether we are focusing on pain, attending to it, having trouble distracting from it, all of these factors can either amplify pain processing in the nervous system or they can dampen it. And in fact, this is recognized by the International Association for the Study of Pain. And so this is, we can argue about whether this is the best definition, but this stricated definition is what exists right now from the IASP. And it recognizes that pain is both a noxious sensory experience, what we feel in our body, but it also is an emotional experience. And so I like to highlight that psychology is actually built into the definition of pain, but a main problem in the way that we focus on pain and treat pain in this country is that we're focusing on the first half of the definition and we largely ignore the second half or it's undertreated. So I like to explain that pain is our harm alarm and it's really effective at getting our attention alerting us that there's danger that we need to get away from, we need to escape whatever this threat is that's ringing that harm alarm. And so our brains do a really nice job of trying to protect us. But unfortunately, once it comes to chronic pain, this ongoing harm alarm is no longer helpful and it actually has detrimental effects that serves to maintain pain in the nervous system. And so it's very critical for us to learn the skills to calm this harm alarm, to quiet it. And while we're born with a motivation to escape pain, we're not born learning, knowing, and having the skills to quiet it, to modulate this experience of pain. This is all the area of pain psychology. These are learned skills. And so we just recognize that these factors, you know, how we think, how we feel, all play into the experience of pain and can either serve to improve our pain or worsen our pain. And in the context of pain treatments, 
Treatments such as opioids can be highly reinforcing because they're calming some of these distressing factors associated with the pain experience. And so this ties right back into my introduction where I said, you know, I'm not anti-opioid, but regardless of whether opioids are used or not, it's critical that people learn how to have this level of control over their own experience so that they're not over-relying on medication. And particularly for people who are at high risk for liking, who may be at high risk for misusing or addiction. And so now at this point, we're going to focus on um, the public health approach to prevention. Back to you. So we've defined the magnitude and the scope of the problem. We're now going to talk about what are the risk factors that cause somebody to develop either chronic pain after an injury, after surgery, or to develop a substance abuse disorder, or persistent use of opioids uh, after these scenarios. And we're going to focus here on low back pain and perioperative pain as examples. Why surgical pain? Because if you think about it, surgery is nothing more than a controlled injury. We take a person off the street, we uh, ram a, I'm a, I'm a recovering anesthesiologist so I can say this, we ram a piece of PVC tubing down their throat, down their trachea, we dial up these poisonous gases, we make them unconscious, insensate, amnestic, and then a surgeon takes a scalpel. It's no different than if they walked out in front of the street and were hit by a car, they just don't have any memory of it and they're flaccid and during the episode it's painless, but it unlocks all of the same consequences as if they had uh, an injury, uh, for instance, from low back pain. So let's focus briefly on low back pain. It's like death and taxes. It's one of the common things that we all get in life. Everybody will get an episode of low back pain. The good news is 90% of people will recover. 10% will go on to get chronic pain. And the question is why? Well, what has been learned is that the severity of the injury often has less to do with some of, the, some of these psychosocial factors of pain, and particularly catastrophizing as time and time again been shown to be the biggest predictor of whether somebody will go on to develop chronic pain. I just took away Dr. Darnell's slide, who would have said that so much more eloquently <laughs> than okay. me. You should have followed my cues. Now it's my turn to talk. So <laughs> let's go into the operating room environment again. We have over 100 million surgeries that occur every year. And what we've also learned is that about 10% on average of people, on average, will go on to develop persistent pain. And the results of this chronic uh, pain persistence are going to vary by surgery types. There's been very few studies that have been characterizing it. What we've been doing in our group is spending a lot of effort to characterize those factors because we believe, again, that this acts as a great model for the rest of uh, the world and the rest of uh, injuries. And so this particular one is back to you. Oh, right. <laughs> yes, so this, um, this is a really interesting study that I wanted to highlight because it really encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about, this intersection between the experience of pain, also surgery being the precipitant, and a person's psychological factors. So this particular study um, was examining patients who had musculoskeletal trauma. And they were looking to see what were the factors that predicted persistence of pain, and in particular, persistence of opioid use. And this is sort of used as a proxy for recovery 
in surgical studies. And, you know, typically we think, when we think of surgery, often we think, well, you know, the most predictive factors of, you know, how well a person recovers or how quickly they recover or how much opioid they need after a surgery, that that's probably, you know, the surgery type, maybe it's the surgeon, maybe it's, you know, their disease characteristics, you know, all of these types of medical variables. But in fact, what we know from the perioperative literature, from the surgical literature, is that it's the psychological factors that so powerfully powerfully predict how quickly a person recovers from surgery and how much opioid they will need. So this was a nice study that just illustrated that sort of surprising concept. Everything that you know about chronic pain is also true in the acute setting, in the perioperative, um, in the perioperative setting. And so what they found is they you know, broadly characterized patients and found that what best predicted recovery was pre-operative psychological characteristics. And unsurprisingly, you know, the big players were, were all um, significant. Anxiety, depression, catastrophizing. Um, does everyone know what catastrophizing is? Do I need to review that definition? Was that a yes? Yeah, how do you assess it? Okay, so very quickly, pain catastrophizing is when we're over-focusing on, on pain and how awful it is. So we, we have a trouble thinking about anything but the pain. We're giving a lot of attention to it. We're ruminating on it. So we sort of magnify the pain experience psychologically, and it's when we feel helpless about it. So it's rumination, magnification, and feelings of helplessness about pain. It's best assessed with a pain catastrophizing scale. This is a 13-item self-report questionnaire that all of us can take in this room, whether or not we have chronic pain, because the questionnaire asks, when you tend to have pain, that could be a dental procedure, it could be surgery, it could be an injury, could be chronic pain. But when you feel chronic pain, how do you tend to think and feel? You sum those 13 items, you get a total score. That total score is amazingly predictive of whether you develop chronic pain, how quickly you're going to recover after surgery, how much opioids you're going to need. So this psychological experience and phenomenon. And indeed, in this study, what they found is all of these factors were predictive of post-surgical status, but when they did the multivariable analysis, backward logistic regression, what they found is that the single predictive factor was pain catastrophizing. We're now going to dive into a series of papers that uh, we published at Stanford to better characterize these factors that will predict whether someone will go on to have persistent pain after a surgery, or use opioids persistently. This effort was led by uh, Dr. Ian Carroll and Dr. Jen Ha, both of whom have been funded under National Institutes of Drug Abuse K-23 uh, grants. And let's dive in. We put forward uh, a different way of conceptualizing these issues. You're used to thinking about pain intensity after an injury uh, or pain intensity after surgery. But we thought about this and said, maybe that's not the most important construct. Maybe it's actually the duration of pain, how long a person has pain, how long a person uses opioids. And so this graph gives you an illustration of a survival curve that we took from the cancer realm, applied the same concepts into pain, with four people each having resolution of their pain or resolution of opioids at different times. Jim resolving the fastest, Billy Bob at the very bottom, you know, still having persistent pain or persistent opioid use quite some time out. And you can identify what are the factors 
that leads someone either to be a fast responder or a delayed responder. And so in this early paper that uh, Dr. Carroll was the first author on, we identified what were the factors before surgery, before anybody ever came into the operating room that were most predictive of persistent pain after surgery. And what we found is the anxiety sensitivity index. In other words, how anxious you feel about bodily sensations, self-perceived risk of addiction, you know, how likely you think you would like an opioid if you were exposed to it. And these are for people who've never been exposed to opioids. And then also things um, such as PTSD and other of these psychosocial variables. Dr. Ha, working with Dr. Uh, Carroll, also worked for this aspect of reduction in, let me start over, who looked at the reduction in how quickly you come off opioids. And in this particular case, we found a different set of factors. We found that depression was the key player here. Depressive symptoms dramatically reduced how quickly you came off the opioids. And you ended up staying on opioids much, much longer. Also, the self-perceived risk of addiction. This one caught me by surprise because we ask people who have never been exposed to an opioid, if you were exposed to an opioid, how likely do you think that you would like this? And I thought the people who said, you know what, I might be kind of vulnerable to this. I might have a problem and might like these opioids. I thought those people would come off the opioids the quickest. I was completely wrong. It was just the opposite. Despite having knowledge that they knew they might be at risk, even though they'd never been exposed, they weren't able to control their behavior and they were on opioids the longest. Interesting. We took the back depression inventory and Dr. Ha then moved this to the next level and did a factor analysis on it and identified that there were certain aspects of this depressive symptomatology that were more cognitive in nature, and we refer to this as self-loathing aspect, people who had a lot of internal criticisms of themselves, that didn't feel good about themselves, that that one alone was the highest predictor of whether somebody would stay on opioids. In fact, if you didn't, if you didn't answer any of these questions at all, you didn't check off anything, everybody was off opioids within a little over three months, every single person. But if you checked off one single item, 17% of people were on persistent opioids for more than 140 days. So it had very high prediction. These are in small samples. These were in the samples of hundreds. What we then did is want to apply this to a population level. And so this effort was run, was led by Eric Sun. And he looked at um, insurance databases for private insurers. Here are over 600,000 people. And looked at opioid naive people before they ever came in for surgery, and then ask the simple question after surgery, you know, how, what percentage of people were still on opioids after surgery? And here where the arrow is, is the non-surgical patients, which is the index case. This was all controlled for a multitude of other factors, and what we find is, yes, surgery conveys a risk, and the type of surgery also dictates that risk. Total knee and total hip arthroplasties were some of the biggest, as well as open cholecystectomies. But I'll share with you, even things such as C-sections conveyed a degree of risk, which is small but still present. And when multiplied by the millions of people in each of these cases, we end up with a, a much higher rate of people going on to get uh, persistent opioid use. One of the key messages that came out from the Institute of Medicine report is that we need better data. And so I want to use just very quickly this uh, case example of Sandra Hyde, who was a young woman who was in upstate New York in college, and she was struck by an automobile. She ended up with complex regional pain syndrome. She moved to Florida. 
She had 10 years of treatments, never got any better. She came to us at Stanford, and she presents the problem that we all have in taking care of patients, and that is figuring out how do we know whether we have made Sandra better? How do we know what treatment is better for her in this particular situation? And the problem is complicated by the fact that pain is complicated. This is a network diagram done up by Dr. Cow at our institution. There will be no quiz at the end of the hour. It's just to illustrate this is a really complicated situation. We try to get the fellows to memorize this by the end. The other challenge that we have that's often not discussed is this dirty little secret that our randomized controlled trials have a, very, uh, have a significant limitation and that we only take homogeneous populations. What I mean by that is we tend to screen out about 90% of the patients for a clinical trial. The problem is those 90% represent the real world. The 10% we take in, those don't represent anything like what we really care for. And so we develop these treatments for a population, and then we put it out into the wild for a population it was never studied in. And so the Institute of Medicine and the Na and, uh, NIH have recognized this in a call for improved data on pain, improved data on opioids, and for the development of learning healthcare systems that allow us to integrate this knowledge and combine science, informatics, incentives, and culture to help improve the quality of care. And ultimately, the goal is to turn our clinics into research labs where every single patient is characterized. We have done this at Stanford with an open source and free learning healthcare system called Choir that integrates into our clinical environment that allows us to get a very deep phenotype on every patient that comes in, allowing us to do point of care decision making, comparative effectiveness research, longitudinal assessment of patients, we're moving into pragmatic, uh, real-world trials with it, and it has fundamentally transformed how we care for our patients at Stanford. We leverage the NIH Promise System, a $120 million investment that allows us to do computer adaptive testing, which means very efficient characterization of patients, and a normative statistic that allows us to, to determine across multiple domains and compare it against anyone else in the country. That means that if we have somebody at Stanford who's had a depressive score of 65, it means exactly the same thing as somebody in Albany, New York, or Gainesville, Florida. We've successfully integrated this into our systems and, and gotten it into the workflow. We've now collected over 15,000 unique patients, 50,000 longitudinal data assessments. We've built our own CAT engine, and as I said, it's fundamentally changed how we care for patients uh, at Stanford. And let me just give you further examples related to the opioid aspects. Dr. Ming Cao has developed something called Choir Provider, which also does automatic note generation so the docs don't have to spend as much time uh, typing up the notes for the patients. They can spend more time talking. We've built in opioid risk tools as well as opioid titration tools. He's become very popular in, uh, in this venue. In addressing a single case of how do we use this to treat somebody like Sandra, Sandra originally came to us and she had very high levels of depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, fatigue, higher scores on these charts represent uh, worse health or more impairment. So I started her on disipramine. She hadn't been trialed on a tricyclic, oddly enough. Also a drug that we've been studying, low-dose naltrexone, which has been used as a, I've been using it as a glial cell inhibitor. We published a couple papers with Dr. Younger on fibromyalgia. And we find that many of her scores go down. In other words, she's improving in function. But what do you people note out there? What is she not changing? Any, any takers? 
Physical function is not budging. Physical function is not budging. And so what we find is that we have to target these individual constructs. So we brought in a health educator who worked with her on goal setting, on better understanding her pain, in uh, setting pacing activities, and we find that the next visit function goes way, way up or improves. So the goal here is, again, to create research quality data in our clinic that we can use for point-of-care decision-making for large pilot trials for comparative effectiveness research. We've been also using this for research purposes. This effort led by Dr. Drew Sturgeon, a postdoc in our lab, is very interested in social functioning as part of the domain. He applied structural equation modeling network analysis to this. And let me just summarize briefly this slide. In thousands of patients, what we know is that if your pain goes up, your physical function goes down. And that leads to you getting depressed and angry. We all know that. That's been established. But if you model this more appropriately, inserting in social functioning, you'll find that social functioning subserves the entire model here. What I mean by that is it's that your pain goes up, your function goes down, and it is your inability to connect and work with other people. It's your social aspects, your social networking that is impaired. That's what leads you to get depressed and angry. Once again, establishing the biopsychosocial aspect of pain. This effort was led by Dr. Darnell. I'm going to talk about it. She could do it better. But the idea of this is she's got a strong interest in catastrophizing in opioids and sex differences. We applied a choir to several thousands of our patients to ask this very simple question. You know, is there a difference between men and women and their likelihood to be on opioids? And are there a, is there a factor around catastrophizing in pain? The answer there is yes, that you're more likely to be on an opioid if you're a man because of high pain intensity. But if you're a woman, it's because of high catastrophizing. You're more likely to be on opioids. What we also did is to apply some nonlinear modeling, something called general additive models to this, by combining all the data. And what we find is the following. The likelihood of your being on opioids it was shockingly dependent on even low catastrophizing scores. We tend to focus out here on the end of this, the tail of this range. But what we found is that subclinical catastrophizing plays a very large role in whether or not you're going to be on opioids, which means we, we tend to dismiss these subclinical emotional distress areas, and perhaps we shouldn't. So in closing out this portion of it, we're moving choir into the perioperative space. We spent seven years collecting 500 patients. We're now, we put this into a perioperative environment, working with an American Academy of Pain Medicine task force. And within a period of several weeks, we've collected over 1,000 patients. So the idea is to deeply phenotype every patient who comes in from surgery to replicate these findings and then to use that information. And with that, let me just close on the last thing. What you've heard me say in these preventative factors is that these psychosocial factors, what people present to an injury, are major indicators of whether we're going to run into problems. The question now is, what are we going to do about it? Thank you. So now we're going to focus more on developing and implementing treatment prevention strategies, and we're really focusing on pain psychology as the example here. And the rationale for that is that when we think about what leads to the development of chronic pain, what maintains pain, what leads to the progression of pain, what determines pain treat what pain treatment strategies are used, and then also what determines our response to those pain treatments. 
Well, what we know is that it's individual, that you know, this woman is going to have a different response than the gentleman. And it's because of these individual factors. These individual factors are everything that make us up as different people, our psychology, our environment, et cetera. And because of these individual differences in pain, they're so well demonstrated and they're really driving the effects and our treatment responses. This is something I feel very passionately about. I've done a lot of writing on this topic. It's why I firmly believe that we cannot simply focus on treating pain with a pill because we need to focus on the whole person. And in fact, in focusing on the whole person, there's been a big emphasis lately on simply limiting access to opioids. And that may be an important part of the equation, but I think those of us who treat pain recognize that simply focusing on limiting access to one treatment pathway, regardless of its risks, really isn't addressing the fundamental problem in this country, which is one of pain and how to best treat it. So the CDC and the National Pain Strategy have, and others, thought leaders, have really focused on this idea of we need to treat pain comprehensively if we're going to address both the pain crises and the opioid crises in this country. And they've really emphasized the importance of treating pain with a biopsychosocial treatment approach. And so recognizing the fundamental, critical, essential role of the individual, of their psychological factors in the treatment of pain and then delivering targeted therapies. There's been primarily a focus on cognitive behavioral therapy as you know, the evidence-based a gold standard treatment. But in fact, it's not just CBT. Mindfulness-based stress reduction has also taken center stage recently. There was a, um, I don't know how many of you saw this clinical trial published in JAMA just a few months ago that compared MBSR and CBT for the treatment of low back pain and essentially demonstrated equivalence with those two treatments. And so there are self-management strategies, MBSR, are effective in teaching people these critical skills to learn how to self-modulate their experience of pain, to learn how to calm their own nervous system. But in truth, the best data exists for CBT. It's been around for 25 years, and what the data very powerfully show is that cognitive behavioral therapy, learning these psychology skills, is basically information and skills that you're gonna learn over eight sessions in either group or individual treatment, that it has the capacity to change the way your brain functions in the context of pain. It also changes the way your brain functions at rest. So even if you're just sitting there, you know, in your chair kind of staring into space, we can detect differences in how your brain is operating after you undergo this important skills acquisitions. You're literally rewiring the way your brain is functioning, and this can be characterized with fMRI and also MRI studies that show that using, learning this uh, CBT and applying it 
actually changes the structure of patients' brains such that the evidence volumetric increases in the regions of the brain that are associated with pain control. So you can tell your patients you're actually growing your brains and you're training your brain away from pain. So this is very well demonstrated. And the other thing I like to highlight is that it appears that this treatment around catastrophizing is the key driver. So when they really look at like what are the what are the critical aspects of CBT and even mindfulness, it appears that reductions in pain catastrophizing are really um, where the bang for our buck is. This was a recent um, review put out by Nora Volko. She is the director of NIDA at the NIH, also highlighting to address the uh, pain and opioid crisis that we really need to focus on these non-pharmacological strategies and ensure that we're optimizing them in our patients. So it goes back to this concept that you know pain is our harm alarm. And because of these individual differences, this alarm is going to ring more loudly in some people than in others. Their brains and their nervous systems may be more protective of them for various reasons that may date back to childhood. It may involve issues around the circumstances of how they acquired pain. But nevertheless, addressing these factors are critical. So the way I explain it to my patients is that you know your brain is working to protect you. Your nervous system is working to protect you. But if we just let it do what it's trying to do, it can take what is essentially your pain. Imagine this is your pain. And if your brain goes on and your nervous system goes on high alert like it wants to do, you're literally growing pain in your nervous system, in your brain. And we can image this and demonstrate this very clearly. So it leads to an amplification of pain that is quantifiable. So I teach people how to stop catastrophizing. And I tell them very carefully, I'm not going to take your pain away. But what I can do is help you get back down to here. And it's much easier to treat this experience with other pain treatments, maybe even pharmaceuticals, than it is to treat this pain experience. And this is the critical role of pain psychology. So I already sort of touched on this. I'm not going to go into this in detail. Um, but just basically underscoring that pain catastrophizing literally has the capacity to shape your nervous system. We need to help people learn the critical skills to move it in the direction of uh, decreasing and dampening pain processing in their nervous system. So what I tell people is, you know, pain isn't a passive process. And this is one reason why pain is not best treated by pill alone. And one of the reasons why we're in this problem right now in the United States is that we have not communicated this message effectively enough, and we need systems to better treat pain. We have to connect patients to this evidence-based treatment that we know works. Yes, so the question was pharmacy treatment. So what I would say is let's hold questions for the end. And the only thing I'll say about that is that there's only so much we can cover in this talk. So we're going to keep it quite focused on these pieces, but happy to have a broader dialogue at the end of the talk. So just focusing on this key piece of catastrophizing, which has been shown to be such a big player in the sort of the genesis of chronic pain, um, my inspiration was to develop a treatment to, uh, to treat catastrophizing in a very efficient manner. So while we typically treat these psychological factors across multiple sessions. Um, what I did was create a two-hour class. It's compressed 
pain psychology that can be delivered very efficiently. And we pilot tested this in the clinic in our real world patients with chronic pain, mixed etiology. And what we found was that a simple two hour psychoeducational class was effective in reducing pain catastrophizing in these patients. And we actually evidenced large treatment effects that um, we used to apply for an NIH grant, were awarded an R01, and are now running a randomized clinical trial to study the efficacy and mechanisms of catastrophizing treatment. Now, Dr. Mackey alluded um, to uh, these uh, the impacts of psychology on surgery, and in fact, I underscored how uh, that, that, that pain catastrophizing is such a powerful determinant of recovery, pain, and opioid use. This was something that I studied in detail to better understand, well, if this is such a big deal, we must have treatments that target this, but in fact, we really don't. And what we know is that outside of the pharmacology, our approach on preventing chronic pain is actually in its infancy. And so this is surprising because if we have catastrophizing on board and other psychological factors, we can have these beautiful surgeries or beautiful treatments, but we don't have the foundation underneath them for the patient to have their best response. And so therefore, this is something important for us to target. So um, what I did was take this compressed pain psychology and adapt it for the surgical setting. And we're testing this now at Stanford in women who are undergoing surgery for breast cancer. And so what we're testing is the hypothesis that, you know, patients are often quite distressed before surgery, particularly with cancer. And can we give them a treatment that will allow them to learn how to self-treat and how to calm themselves prior to surgery and also after surgery? These are the types of solutions that we need going forward. This is purely internet-based, so it's free. And these are the, this is what we need when we think about, well, part of the problem in this country is that we have patients who live in rural settings. Where are they going to find the pain psychologist? We need solutions such as this that, are, that have no barriers to access. So we're also using um, periop choir at Stanford Hospital to be able to determine who's catastrophizing before surgery, and then we can send them an automatic link to this internet-based pain psychology treatment and optimize them before surgery so that ideally they have better outcomes and don't develop post-surgical chronic pain. So if you ask me, you know, it's often like patients will say, well, they sent me to the psychologist, they think it's all in my head, and people don't believe me. But those of us in the audience, we know that's not true. But unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma around psychology in this country still that needs to change. If you ask me who needs psychological treatment for pain, I would say every single one of us need it. It's incumbent upon us to learn how to optimize this so that we have the best response to all treatments. If we learn these critical skills, we can ensure that we have our best response to all treatments. We're learning how to dampen our pain processing in our own nervous system, and we can learn to become more active and more engaged in our care. So I have focused on this quite a bit, this idea of optimizing patient skills and information as a pathway to minimize opioids. And this is really what we need because this is where we were in the past and part of what was maintaining this emphasis on opioids was a lack of education about pain. It was um, also poor resources 
to treat pain. And so to get ourselves out of this, to get ourselves down to minimizing opioids in this country, as um, a lot of national groups are advocating, what we need in order to get there is this emphasis on biopsychosocial. We need pain education for all healthcare providers. And fundamentally, we have to equip physicians with the resources to treat pain better. We have done a disservice to physicians, to prescribers in the United States. They have not received adequate training. And even if they know about the biopsychosocial model and want to implement it, they will come to me and they will say, that's great, Beth, but you know, I live in Iowa and this little tall, small town, and where do I find someone like you there? And the truth is we're woefully uh, prepared to address these psychological factors in this country. I was attended the pain psychology SIG yesterday and was really delighted to meet some of my countries from around, um, some of my colleagues from around the country who are similarly focused on helping patients. But we conducted this national needs assessment earlier this year, and this was part of the task force on pain psychology at the American Academy of Pain Medicine. And what we found after surveying 2,000 individuals in the United States across six key stakeholder groups, including 1,000 patients. We surveyed hundreds of mental health therapists and psychologists. We surveyed pain physicians, primary care physicians, physicians assistants, and nurse practitioners. And what we found very broadly is that people don't know how to find a qualified pain psychologist in the United States. We do not have good systems to be able to know who's qualified and to be able to do a search and then to plug that resource, connect that resource to patients who need it. And this has led to a lot of confusion among patients, among providers. And so one of the things that we need in this country is a system just like this, some kind of an internet-based platform search engine. We need a system so that everyone can figure out where these resources are. Um, I'll tell you, if there are people in this audience who are interested in investing in such of a national priority, please come speak with me. I would love to um, chat with you about what we can do to make a big difference in the United States to treat pain comprehensively. So let's close out a little bit on some of the uh, tools, the trends, and resources to better help manage this problem. Uh, we developed uh, at Stanford in coordination, collaboration with American Academy of Pain Medicine, I think the first MOOC, Massively Open Online uh, course on safe opioid prescribing. It meets all of the FDA REMS requirements, but we took it beyond the REMS, which is just focusing on extended relief long-acting opioids and meant it as an opioid education tool. It's free. Uh, you can get uh, also free CME hours for it, so log on and we, uh, while I do the intro on this, we've got some uh, national experts who were actually doing the course content and it's gone over very well. Additionally, we invite you to come to the American Academy of Pain Medicine meeting uh, that will be in March of 2017. As I mentioned, Dan Carr is the current president. He's put public health as a defining theme for his presidency. And what we've been working in the academy is to bring in uh, other disciplines to be very inclusive and have everybody's voice heard around pain. We've got a lot of content uh, education hours, and it'll be a good meeting. It'll be a great meeting. And then just to dovetail on that, at the AAPM uh, annual meeting in March, 
Um, as part of the pain psychology task force, we're putting on a three-hour workshop. And this workshop is relevant to all healthcare providers to learn about the critical role of behavioral medicine in the treatment of pain. So I invite everyone with an interest to come into this workshop, which is really practical, hands-on. You come away with a lot of resources and tools. So also going further on this topic of trends and resources and tools, just want to acknowledge that there's a big focus on opioid tapering now in the United States. Um, and uh, I'm also involved in an opioid tapering study. This is a community uh, opioid tapering. It's voluntary, but there are seven clinics in Colorado that are interested in helping their patients come down or off on opioids. And so they're simply inviting people to, um, to, to wean or taper. And what they're doing is they're offering them a, uh, a safe pathway to do that. And so what they do is they say, you know, we're going to go very slow. We're going to go at your own pace. And we, they give them a resource. They give them uh, my book. And they follow them very closely and uh, simply provide them with that pathway. And what was interesting was last year we did a pilot study in about 50 or 60 patients simply inviting them to wean. And what I was surprised is that most patients, when given the opportunity, did choose to wean. And those who did wean, um, we followed that we collected data at baseline at month four, and we're now collecting their year one data. But at month four, the uh, people who weaned off of opioids reported that their pain either stayed the same or it improved. And so that's a really nice message that we can start giving patients because their main fear is that their pain is going to increase. So there is a compassionate way to go forward. Um, there are a lot of patient groups happening now focused around this. So at the Pain Psychology SIG, Ted Jones was talking about how he's doing um, opioid tapering groups, psychological groups where uh, interested patients come and learn how to do this. There are other psychologists. There was a psychologist from Prescott. Is he here in the audience? He's doing an opioid weaning group to are putting it together. So I just highlight this as a trend that's happening in the country. Um, so pain psychology resources that are available for you right now, um, these are things that you can use to engage your patients in some of these concepts to point them in the right direction of engaging in their care, of understanding this critical role of psychology in the experience of pain and also in the trajectory of their pain and in um, their treatment response. So some of these are videos, educational videos that you can give them. These are all in your slides, so please don't feel like you have to jot down these links. If you download them, we updated the slides at about 8 o'clock this morning. So if you just go and download them, you'll have all of these resources there. Um, but these are just some of the pain education links. These are critical. Um, if you came early, you got a copy of my second book. Um, and um, hopefully there's some left if you didn't get one. Um, and also there's a book signing after this session. If you would like me to sign your book, it's right across from the registration booth, I believe. Yes. Um, Mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness meditation, and also relaxation resources. These are free. In the book that you got for free today, that comes with a 20-minute um, binaural pain management CD. Please use that with your patients if you're so inclined. Um, and these are also additional free resources that are available for you online. Just want to po point out that there is that eight-week free online MBSR uh, session. So, so uh, class that's available for your patients.
questions. So the future, where is this all going? We've taken you through defining the problem, identifying risk and prevention factors, and then developing and testing some of these that we then all need to work together to put these things out into the wild. And so with CHOIR, where we are right now is that we've uh, integrated this into the Stanford system. We have now put this in other academic medical centers throughout the country. We're looking for other partners. Uh, it does require some degree of IT resources, and so it's not yet ready for prime time in community practices. We hope to be able to build the installer and the other systems to be able to make that uh, happen, but right now it requires some resources. We're integrating in all sorts of other biomarker data like genetics, QST, and others. We are uh, continuing to build on features on this. We are, as again, giving it away for free with minimal licensing restrictions. And yes, we do get a lot of NIH funding, but not any of it goes to this. All of this is being funded by generous philanthropy and people working on nights and weekends. And so if anybody is interested in writing checks, we certainly accept donations. We'll take those along uh, gratefully with all the bake sales we run. And then the National Pain Strategy. That was released in March of this year also. Didn't get as much attention as the CDC guidelines. We all know that. But we're right now trying to work to you know, improve the, uh, the vocalness of the NPS. Uh, there is a federal task force that's been put forward with, it's been charged with implementing this, and that is underway as we speak. There is also, uh, led by Linda Porter, the Federal Pain Research Strategy, which is going to run parallel to this effort to talk about what we need to do about research in this country. And the key message is we all have to work together. Uh, for the physicians, we have an effort at the American Academy of Pain Medicine to develop areas of targeted interest within the NPS that we're going to be going after. We're collaborating with the Chronic Pain Action Task Force. I've got to really credit this group of, I think it's over 20 of the consumer, um, the consumer groups, and they've done a great job with putting out messaging there. Finally, in closing out on this, let me just read off to you what we finished up with for the National Pain Strategy, and that is if we can achieve the objectives of the NPS, the nation would see a decrease in the prevalence across the continuum of pain. This would reduce the burden of pain for individuals, families, and society as a whole. That Americans experiencing pain would have access to a care system that meets their biopsychosocial needs and takes into account individual preferences, risks, and their context. That Americans would recognize chronic pain as a complex disease and a threat to our public health. We focused on this session around the public health threat. Significant public resources would be invested in the areas of preventing pain, creating access to evidence-based and high-quality pain assessment and treatments, and improving self-management abilities amongst those with pain. Finally, individuals who live with chronic pain would be viewed and treated with the compassion and respect that they deserve. And so let's bring some final thanks to the folks in our lab, the Stanford Systems Neuroscience and Pain Lab. They get all the work done. Uh, we're just, I'm just the talking head. She gets a lot of work done. I get done. work done. <laughs> uh, I want to say thanks there. And I got to tell you, I think we ended up right on time because we wanted to leave a big buffer for question and answer. So with that, we really were thrilled to come here and talk about this important topic and its intersection. It's controversial. We're hoping to get some good discussion going. So on behalf of Dr. Darnell and I, we thank you. Thank you. And I think we still have uh, over 15 minutes built into this for question and answer. We and I do. wanted to take this gentleman's first ask question. This is about ketamine and depression. Was, that was right? So yes, we, interesting. We've been using ketamine at uh, Stanford for chronic pain for 10, 15 years. A number of other sites use it as well. 
Um, I'll share with you that it's not been systematically studied as well as what the psychiatrists are doing right now. There's a number of NIH studies. Stanford is in node for one. And in sub-anesthetic uh, doses of ketamine, we're seeing significant improvements in some people with depression. And the idea is ultimately to try to combine these therapies because maybe addressing the depression with something like ketamine then makes them more receptive to other treatments such as what Dr. Darnell has mentioned. And by the way, if you can, rules of engagement, if you will, just throw out your name, where you're from, and then speak from the gut because it's a big room. The question is, uh, from the, uh, the, the doc from Cedars-Sinai, is the epidemiology of pain in the U.S. worse than in other countries, and if so, why? The answer is very simply no. And this is a great question. It's a cool one because I can answer it. Uh, so when the IOM came out, what we used was uh, several of the federal databases, but also a WHO uh, database. And what we found is that 100 million represents about 37% of the U.S. adult population depending on how you calculate it. Remember, that includes the whole spectrum of chronic pain. That includes my dad, who's self-managing his chronic pain and his injuries at home and refuses to see a doc, refuses to talk to me, to end-of-life cancer pain, and everything in between. That 37% fits exactly in the middle of where we see other developed countries. Uh, so the numbers are the same from the percentage. It's around 35 to 42% in other countries. The dollar amount, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation in 2011 while I was in an IOM meeting. And if you take the currency exchange into account in Australia, they also had just come out with numbers. It comes out to exactly $1.8 billion per million lives, the same number they have. And so welcome to the human race, folks. It's a global problem. So we have a microphone now. So if you do have a question, please raise your hand and we'll, I see a couple back there. You could run the mic back. Hello? Yep, we can hear you. Okay, so this, you may have just um, squashed my question because if you're saying that the same percentage of chronic pain population exists all over the world, maybe, maybe this isn't, this isn't a, a, appropriate, but whatever. So you talked about how I'll put it out there, go ahead. Well, you talked about how catastrophizing was such a big deal. I have my own solo pain practice, and I can't tell you the number of patients who have come in who have said, oh, this doctor told me I had the worst back ever, and I certainly yeah. have yeah. the worst case of fibromyalgia he's ever seen. And it's kind of like the system itself, also even just watching all the yes. pill commercials on television, it's almost like we're feeding or fanning the flames of catastrophizing yeah. Yeah. to make this worse. But if it's the same population across the world, I, I'm sure maybe that's, maybe that's not appropriate. But Well, you, what was your name? I'm sorry. My name is Susan Moreno. Susan, thank you. Thank you for that um, excellent point. And in fact, yes, it's not just about um, treating catastrophizing with our patients, but we need to be very mindful as healthcare providers that the language that we use has a big impact. 
And so as providers, we want to constantly be shaping our patients towards an understanding of what they can do, how they can help themselves, how they can make it better. Um, because you're absolutely right that the culture, the way that we talk to our patients, and also some of the advertising or marketing um, you know, plays into and amplifies people's fears. And uh, that's not good when it comes to pain. That's, we absolutely want to be moving things in a different direction. And you know, it could have played a role in where our pain treatments have diverged. Because while we have the same amount of pain in the United States as in other countries around the world, we treat pain differently here than we do elsewhere. Thank you for that. The questions. There's a question right in the back, yes. Uh, my name is David Smith. I'm an interventional pain physician from Kingston, Ontario. Um, my question is, you know, we're probably doing more opioid weaning now than we are prescribing opioids. Um, probably one of the, you know, the main things that we tackle are patients coming to us from other physicians who have prescribed very large doses of, of opioids with no evidence of any functional improvement. Um, my question is, uh, is there a talk during this conference uh, from somebody who's an expert on weaning? Um, and if not, is there a particular person uh, who writes papers on that that you can recommend? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I didn't see anything in this talk in particular. Um, there are papers that one paper in particular from Jennifer Murphy at the VA. Um, these, uh, a lot, the few key studies on opioid weaning that I have seen are really in the context of an, an interdisciplinary program. Um, so you want to bear that in mind. Um, the data are pretty consistent in showing that in that context that, um, you know, that, that patients simply do better and their pain does not increase. It's one of the reasons why I'm doing this particular community-based study on clinics throughout Colorado that are focusing on voluntary wean because we don't have great data. And in fact, I'm not aware of other studies that are really at the community level quantifying patient response to a voluntary opioid wean that is not necessarily a substance abuse population or they're not inpatient. So this kind of ties back to we need better data. Um, but I'm, I'm also happy to chat with you more about um, the information that we have around opioid weaning and what we're doing in our study as well. And just and to build on that, if I can, uh, are you asking about information related to what is the research evidence on the benefits of opioid weaning, the consequences of it, or are you asking, hey, is there a lecture on kind of the nuts and bolts of how do I do this safely and effectively for my patients? Nuts and bolts. That's what I thought. We're, we're I doing, thought. I mean, we're having the same experience yeah. you're seeing where most of our patients are getting better. Uh, we're doing some suboxone um, uh, rotations to get people off of very high doses because it's just a faster way to, yeah. to get them off. Um, At this point, I think you're going to find a lot of um, people making up their own recipes. Yeah. You know, we're happy to share with you our recipes. I, I don't think that this has been really well systematically studied and, and funded by the NIH. And, you know, it's not unique to opioid weaning. You know, the gentleman here was asking about ketamine. We've all been using it for decades now. 
And there's no good systematic studies on the dosing of that, the frequency of it. So we have a lot of research that we need to do. Back to that point. Well, I think, I, it, listen, I'm not going to catch that one. Uh, you know, I think we all need to work together, don't we? <laughs> it's always easy to say, you guys. Listen, this is, it takes, it takes, it takes a village. That's the point. I'm seeing cures like you have never seen. If you haven't treated someone with ketamine or depression. Yeah, I think you're pointing the finger at the wrong person because we... We've been, we've been doing this for decades, and I'm with you. I'm with you. I think the message is we all got to work together on these, and we'll get back to that if we can. To the gentleman with the question, I agree with you entirely that perhaps a white paper in trying to review the field on how to most safely and effectively wean people down on opioids, and it'll be an expert opinion. Uh, we recognize it, but it sounds like it would be of great value to, to the community. So and thank a, you for that. And maybe a MOOC. <laughs> Maybe well. a MOOC. Yes. Yeah. Question. Yes. Oh, sorry. Which journal? Thanks. It's 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 a good resource. Thank you for calling that one out. I think we can all recognize that all of these things are going to be based on uh, one's individual clinical experiences yeah. and how they've approached it. And so the, the challenge in all of these is, is that we get really good at doing what we do. We're really good at, at Stanford at doing what we do. But the question is, will that translate to your environment where you may not have exactly the same resources? And so I think we all recognize that we need those generalizable tools. Thanks for calling that one out, yeah. though. Um, hey, this is a, a comment, not a question. Uh, Gail Cockwell, I'm Chief Medical Officer at Purdue Pharma. I just wanted to let people know that we are funding, um, doing an RFP on exactly this topic. So um, it's just come out. So if, if you're a researcher who's interested in doing research on how do you taper, how do you discontinue opioids, um, whether that's using ancillary treatments like CBT or medicines or other things, um, uh, or you know of researchers who'd be interested, we'd be interested in getting your grant applications and considering them for funding, because we absolutely recognize there's just not enough evidence. Yep. Thank you. When's the deadline for that? Um, good question. Um, uh, uh, I think it's um, end of October, but I'm not sure. Okay. If you go onto the Purdue website, there yep. should be information there. Great. I think that's one of thank the, you. thank you. That's one of the key things is that we need to be partnering with everybody. And we all need to be working together, whether it be um, the Fed, uh, what the industry, with academics, and with the community. This is a public health problem. As defined early on, we all got to come together. Yes, I think we've been, let, we should go to this side of the room because we've been. So, uh, Michael Sanger, uh, VA, I appreciate what you're saying about a larger biotech approach. In terms of, we, we, we don't have enough. Uh, psychologist period yeah. uh, if we had more or if we could train up folks uh, what would be your experience in terms of 
when to use CBT versus ACT, acceptance commitment therapy? Yeah, um, so the question is when to use CBT or ACT. I want to just address the very first part of your question, which is we don't have enough psychologists. We don't have enough psychologists. We also don't have enough psychologists who are well-trained in pain. And when I mentioned that national needs assessments um, that we conducted earlier this year, what we found was that the majority of mental health therapists and psychologists don't feel comfortable treating pain, even though they're seeing patients with pain, because most people have it, or a third of people, but because it also co-occurs with a lot of the reasons why people would be seeing a therapist. So pain is really going untreated, largely, in the therapeutic context. And this is a really big problem in, in the context of everything that we've been talking about today. Your particular question, um, so, so just to say one thing about that, I mean, we really need better training for psychologists in the role that psychology plays in the experience of pain and in the treatment of pain. This would seem, to, to non-psychologists, you might be thinking, don't they all know about this? But no, actually we're not taught this in undergrad. We're actually not taught about pain in graduate school and even at the postdoctoral level, according to the data that we collected, even when psychologists go for a specialty health psychology postdoctoral fellowship, Many of them are not receiving the basics about you know, pain and how, how psychology interfaces with it. So we need national educational efforts that are integrated into existing curricula at all levels of education, the undergraduate level, the graduate level, at the postdoctoral level, and we need dedicated um, ongoing continuing education on pain for mental health professionals and psychologists. So that even if you're not gonna become a pain psychology expert, you at least know how to assess the factors and how to refer people to the right providers. Your second question, and then I'm gonna answer your question because I know you're, you have something to say on this topic. Your second question was, how do we know when to refer someone to ACT versus CBT? So this is a more nuanced question, in fact. And um, this is where we really get into the individual differences in needing to phenotype people. So the one thing I will say about that, there is no one size fits all. You need to get to know your patients and understand sort of what they're most receptive to, what approach they're gonna be most receptive to. But one of the things that I can say unequivocally is that when people have a high level of injustice present, and that injustice could be perceptions of injustice around, let's say their chronic pain at all. Maybe they were involved and they were rear-ended by an individual, they sustained whiplash, they have chronic neck pain, it has changed their life, they're not working, etc. And they're angry and they really feel um, that they, there has been a grave injustice and they're carrying this with them. So we actually know that in these cases, CBT is less effective, that something like ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, can be incredibly helpful because we need to fundamentally address these perceptions of injustice so that then they can move forward from a platform of being more fully engaged 
as, as an active participant in their care versus waiting for somebody to fix it because they have been wronged. So this really dives into kind of like the inner workings of pain psychology, but I, I just want to say that there are a multitude of approaches. One size doesn't fit all. I'm sort of a fan of integrating a little bit. I, I don't claim to be, you know, sort of, I, I'm, I'm not a purist in any capacity, and I weave bits of each into my treatment approach based on what the patient needs and when there's moments of receptivity that, that I detect. So um, I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, hopefully. And then I will just wanted to turn this over to, to the woman right here who had a comment. Hi, my name is Delicia Harris. I work at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. And we relied very heavily on our pain psychologist. But unfortunately, we lost both of them just recently. So uh, we're looking. Anybody? That yeah. Wants <laughs> you Talk and everyone me. else. <laughs> um, so my question is, I know you gave the online uh, resources for patients. Is that a good enough bridge? I mean, we're doing what we can to get people where they need to be, but we're not pain psychologists. So there's only so much we can do in the yeah. time that we have. No, so it's it, it's a great point. And so, you know, there's there's what's best and then there's what's possible in any given moment. And so you just do the best you can in those moments of bridging. Nothing is going to take the place of a qualified, skilled individual who can assess the patient's needs, because it all goes back to those individual differences. So we need to, we really need to treat each person as the individual and meet their specific needs. Um, but in the interim, while you're waiting to, uh, while you're hiring, um, these are great resources that you can use to at least initiate conversations with patients. And these are tools that, you know, if you have a social worker, if you have a care coordinator, if you have a physician's assistant, or if you're the physician and you have a few moments, you can say to your patient, I want you to just learn a little bit more about what you can do to help yourself. Those videos are great resources. The other thing I will say is plug every single one of your patients into the American Chronic Pain Association. They have a lovely website, a lot of videos. I didn't have uh, sort of space to list them all, but all you need to know is that the American Chronic Pain Association has a multitude of videos. Um, they have free support groups. You can do a search to see if there are support groups in your area. If you're a clinic and you're motivated, you can contact the ACPA and say, listen, I would like to start an ACPA support group in my clinic. How do I do that? These are peer-led support groups. So lots of resources, print resources, video resources, and support groups through the ACPA, um, books, etc. So again, you know, there's what's ideal, and then there's real world. Um, and I'm happy to talk with you offline about additional resources if you'd like. Well, we're right at, I just got the signal over there, <laughs> we're right at the hour, finished on time. Thanks for sticking around Thank you and all. thanks for uh, sharing your time with us. Thank you.